Hey, bro. Welcome to the La Raza BIPOC Access Podcast. We are here today with Spin, and we are going to be talking a bit about the new project that is coming together, give everyone a bit of background on how it came together, the value that we're going to be bringing to creatives across the country, and we also want to give a special shout out to Canada Arts Council for making this all possible. And now we're going to introduce to you, to you the man himself, Spin. Yes, 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 uh, man. Honored to be here for our inaugural episode now um before i continue we got to make sure you're rolling the r brother it's la raza la raza ah, bam, there we go so yeah la raza bipoc axis uh i am spin el poeta honored to be here um with my brother mark from bipoc axis so we got this um generous funding through the canada council for the arts we're very grateful to run a one-year artist development project, which is going to have a component of podcasts, this of which this is the inaugural one, a series of workshops specifically focused on artist development as requested by the artists that we recruit, and a, a culminating conference uh, along with some showcases along the way on these, on these workshops. We got a really dope lineup. Um, I'm the founder of One Mic Educators. It's an artist education enterprise. We also have uh, a collective, so Glows and I are co-founders of the One Mike Educators Collective. We just finished uh, wrapping up a festival, La Raza Festival, the inaugural festival. It's the year of the inaugural still. So we had the La Raza Festival funded by the Toronto Arts Council. Um, Four-day festival is an incredible experience. And uh, we were fortunate to get blessed by the Canada Council for the Arts for this project now. Um, what we've done is we've recruited artists that, that we have much respect for and any artist that's listening we got a lot of talent in Canada and we just need some help on the marketing side of it, on the viral side of it. And that's really where this was designed. I mean, even though I secured the funding for this and I've been doing this for over two decades, I myself still need that support on the artist development and the marketing and all that. And my brother Mark just been doing his thing, you know, uh, dope content, BIPOC access, everything that, that he's been doing, I was just real impressed with. So I was glad we came together, brother, to put this, this, uh, project together, man, and we're going to be executing. You know, we got uh, Leroy Esco, Aleem Rashid Mohammed, Amoya Ray, Crystal Rivers, Tracy J. Malika, Glows, Youngstar Mills, uh, Coach Siete at some point. You know, we're going to have uh, a run through as far as having them get their episode of a podcast, share some of their art, and just very, very open, vulnerable discussions around the challenges we all face as artists at different stages in our career, whether it's professional and you're able to make money off of it, whether you're starting out, whether it's like a struggle to get the YouTube numbers up, you know, which even though I've been doing for two decades, my YouTube channel is dead in the water, man. So definitely we want to make sure we get all these things uh, addressed over the course of the year that we're going to be delivering these workshops. It'll be one a month, effective immediately, October leading on to August, where we're going to have three workshops, three podcasts released, and we're going to culminate with the conference. And something that's very special to me, and I'm probably going too long, stop me if you need me to, okay. So something that's very special to me as well is um, a lot of us, you know, south of the border, man, is the arts, the poetry scene is just so vibrant. You know, you get hundreds of people out. I mean, there's so many lit cities in the United States, and I really wanted us to have that connect. So I'm very honored that we have eBaby, a very talented spoken word artist, organizer of uh, co-organizer of Buzz Boys and Poets. Uh, we're going to be bringing them up 
for the conference to kind of share as an organizer, as a longtime professional spoken word artist, and as somebody that's deeply passionate about intellectual property, um, to just kind of share what it's like on that side of the border and what it would take, you know, for Canadian artists to be able to make it into these venues. We also got my brother El Uno. He runs Elements in Atlanta. He featured me. That was my first international feature, man. It was a blessed event, indicator. And uh, I just wanted to return the favor and start getting, you know, our Canadian audiences to get to know them. My bad, go ahead. No worries at all. Speaking on that a bit, I wanted you to kind of touch on that. So him giving you that initial opportunity to kind of see what it was like to go overseas, um, perform somewhere else and kind of open you up to a new audience. What did that mean to you in terms of your professional development? And um, what kind of ideas or opportunities did it open in your mind to what you could do within the field? Man, it was it was just such a blessing. There was so much love. Like, you know, I met him randomly in Toronto. And we'll speak more when we get him on the podcast. We were at an open mic. We were featuring. It was like a weird vibe. Um, not a lot of our people were in the room at the time. So we just kind of gravitated. And, you know, we connected with each other's poetry. And I just told him, you know, how much I appreciated his work and everything. And, and you know, just give some kind, some good, kind words. And then just years later, we just happened to, you know, we, we, we follow each other on Instagram and everything, but he just kind of reached out, like expressing gratitude at those words that I had shared with him and letting me know his trajectory and how he, he had actually taken a hiatus and then got back onto it. And then from that, I mean, he organizes an incredible series called Elements. And I, I was down in the, in the vicinity at the time I was in Tampa and, and he told me to come through and we, we coordinated it. All the stars aligned. I was on my way back to Canada driving and the love that I got that night, man, I had some poster poems. I had some merch, which is something I want to talk about along the course of, of what we do with this project is having some good merch. Um, you know, we were able to, I got a lot of sales of the poster poems that I had. I had a lot of followers. I just had a whole new experience, man. I think as Canadian artists, we get pigeonholed up here and we're just kind of competing and stumbling all over each other. And, you know, the slam poetry scene is toxic up here. Everybody who knows me knows how I feel about them. And I've won on a national level, provincial level. And like, it's, it's crazy. It's like, there's no merit here. But down there, you got to have the chops. And so it was definitely escalated the, the level of poetry that you got to deliver. And it just gave me this hunger, which brought us to where we are today. That's dope. So it's almost like it um, gave you a better idea of like what was needed to really succeed and kind of what the competition was over there outside of Canada. Yeah, absolutely, man. And I mean, even in Tampa, they got a, a dope poetry scene, the Grow House Tampa. Uh, slam poetry scene is beautiful. It's organic. It's healthy, you know, and that's not something I often say about slam poetry. So to me, it was just like, I need to open up these doors for my people so that we can get through. Like, you know, these artists I mentioned that we're going to have on board are incredible, all in their own rights. You know, not all of them necessarily poets, but to me, any good singer, songwriter, any good rapper is a great poet first. Yeah. And talk a bit about that. So like, what is slam poetry to people who may be listening, who have no idea about slam poetry? They know poetry, they may just know haikus, but like, what is slam poetry? What is spoken word? And like, how do you feel it brings value to the audience? People mm. out there? So spoken word, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, since we're going to be vulnerable, I got to set the tone Let's right. I, I started with spoken word because I just couldn't land a beat when I was trying to rap and shit. And <laughs> <laughs> I said, fuck it, I'm going to go acapella for a couple of years and try, try to figure this out. So, um, you, know, you know, but within that, I was like, yo, this is dope. Like, I actually enjoyed it. I've been blessed. I was the only poet to perform spoken word at a hip hop festival in Cuba and Venezuela. And I mean, at the Venezuela festival, Dead, Dead Prez was there. Um 
Immortal Technique was there. It was like the best rappers in Latin America, you know, Actitud Maria Marta, Aria 23. It was just these incredible artists. And I was up there doing spoken word, man. And it was like, it was wild, but it was really liberating. You don't need a beat. You don't need anything. You literally just pour your heart out into the page. And I grew up hip hop. So there's a natural flow when I deliver the poetry. Now you go into the slam poetry scene. Essentially what that is, is uh, you get five judges chosen randomly, or they should be chosen randomly. They're not always. And you literally share a poem that got to be within three to three minutes and 10 seconds max. And then these five random people give you a score and you, you could be out there talking about your dead brother or having got shot or whatever. And then you get like a 6.5 if they didn't connect with it. It's like, <laughs> it's wild. But to me, it's excellent training ground because it made me create enough work that no matter who was in the audience, you know what I'm saying? If it was a bunch of like a pumpkin spice latte vibe, I would have something for them. Oh, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's our people. I'm good. If it's like I'm a hood vibe, I'm good. So it allowed me to create a very wide body of work. I, I recommend it. The problem is that it gets toxic. So a lot of people make it seem like it's Christmas or it's like, oh, well, I got 9.7. And then I don't care about that part. I care about winning. I want to win. If I don't win, I don't win. But then I go back to, to the drawing board and see how I can improve as a poet. So when you know there's a score coming for your poem and you purposely put yourself in that position, you purposely put yourself in that position, you're going to deliver a higher quality performance. So, you know, I've won on a national level. I'm two-time Toronto Poetry Slam Grand Slam champ, uh, two-time Slam Terrio champ. None of that meant anything at the end of the day, like, uh, because I wasn't in the click. You know, I had to go around kissing people's behinds, and I'm not that dude. And at the end of the day, my poetry is rooted in community. So I'm way more comfortable in lane dropping a poem than I am at the theater of whatever with like all these people snapping their fingers. I don't care about that, but I'll take their money. I'll take the prizes if I can. But ultimately, you know, it's, um, it's a good training ground. But my hope with our project is that we can provide the tools to our people where they don't have to put themselves in that environment if they're not comfortable with slam. You know, we're going to hear from Glows in a bit. She wants nothing to do with that genre. You know what I'm saying? And I want for them to not have to do anything with the genre and still get, you know, the credit, the credibility, the bookings, the, the whatever they want to get with their lives, you know. So, yeah, I hate slam, but I love it, but I mostly hate it. <laughs> and what would you kind of say is the way for you yourself, you wanted to get into kind of um, more performance art um, in terms of rapping? Uh, maybe we're trying to catch the beat, figure out how to do that aspect, and then you end the spoken word. But what do you find is kind of like, because you've done a lot of uh, mentoring in this space as well. You've taught a lot of people about how to get into this space. Um, I initially, I think, met you when I was 19. And I came down to a spoken word conference with, shout out to Sam Matar and Lawrence Mante. Oh, yeah. Um, and well, we connected. And then I had done my piece. That was the first time I kind of rapped, not on a beat. Just that was at like York University. Word. Correct, York yeah. University. And then you had called me back to go on CHRY. And we had done like some highlights from that day and got to perform over there. And that now is probably about like 19, 20 years ago, but it just shows that kind of like you get introduced into spoken word or into different arts because you already have a talent, but you might not necessarily recognize all the outlets you can use it within. So with the people that you've worked over all of these years now, what do you find is kind of like that takeaway or like, what is it that um, when they get into the space, they didn't realize, but then you see that it opens up something in them. Mm, I feel like, Wow, man, you're taking me way back in the day. We had, uh, that was Rhyme, Revolutionaries Honoring Your Mind's Eye, Samatar, uh, Pablo, Eddie, 
Street Dreamer, Helen Johannes, Paulina O'Keefe, Bona was in the squad at one point. Yeah. Um, wow, yeah. So, I mean, we were all, at that point, I was a youth, you know, I'm, I'm a bit old now, but at that time, I was a youth, so I could still land those grants and all that. And we had this project, we were actually doing workshops in, in, um, in open custody and in uh, juvie, you know, just working with the youth to create, and we were youths ourselves. And what I've realized along the way, man, is a lot of times people are just lacking the confidence. You know, there's a big issue with imposter syndrome in our communities, you know, black, Latino, indigenous, whatever. And there's all these micro and macro aggressions that we're subjected to at the hands of the privileged white people that, you know, kind of look down on us. And so we have, we got, I always told the youth, you're going to have to work twice as hard, period. Like there's no other way around it. You're going to have to work twice as hard. It ain't going to be fair. <laughs> this is what you're in for i want our people to feel comfortable man and you know i make all these jokes but i do acknowledge i carry white privilege and i think that's something that makes it a responsibility for me to be able to create platforms like this so that people that don't you know have that who do have to work even three times four times as hard have doors open for them that that you know Others might have to kick open, man. I don't want our people to stress. I want our people to feel blessed and know that they belong. So the imposter syndrome was something huge. Building the confidence was something huge. And just realizing that, you know, there's so much out here that can be done. A lot of us come from immigrant families. You know, they they want to box us upside the head and we're like, I want to be an artist. They're like, well, how are you going to make money? It's like, an artist. Like, yeah, it's not a good look, man. <laughs> it's not. A, I didn't do everything I did for you to... So there are ways to do it, you know? <laughs> Everyone's laughing here because we all know. Um, so so y'all that are hearing this, you know what I'm saying? is real. Like, you know, I mean, I love my mother. She raised me proper, but she definitely was not happy. when I was like, I'm going to become a, a full-time artist. <laughs> and I think they come from a time, too, where them wanting to kind of see that sustainability and, like, the options and opportunities that they had when they were younger. And a lot of the time it's like, I've seen that a lot. And it's kind of one of those things where when I research artists who kind of come out and they become successful, some of the greatest artists that become successful, a huge part of it is the fact that they have the full support of their parents. And not only that, but their parents are actually subject matter experts within what they're doing. And perfect example, Beyonce. Like she was literally managed by her mother and father. And like that is what drove her to become one of the biggest artists in the world. They were literally there the entire time until Beyonce said, I'm going to manage myself. So, like, at, there's a real thing there about support and being able to support in art. For me personally, I feel like the more someone's at peace, the more they're able to connect with that creative side. The more that you're in, sometimes in a frustrated position, et cetera, it can fuel creativity. But sometimes just to be able, when you're in that peaceful state, you're able to tap into it almost like more um, readily. And it's almost like more readily available. I'm so glad you brought that example, man, because look at what's possible when you have that parental support is spot on. And I really... For me, I just feel it's a mission to create, you know, to open these doors and to create these opportunities. Like, I'm very proud to say that, you know, I got a grant uh, six, seven years ago from the Ontario Art Council to do the One Mic Educators 2.0. And, you know, GLOWS was one of the, the youth in the program at that time. And now they all professional artists in their own right. You know, like, GLOWS getting more bookings than me. She got two books out. I ain't published yet. Like, but I'm happy, you know what I'm saying? I just need to get my life in order. But... <laughs> I'm happy that they doing their thing because to me, there's no like, you know, the teacher outgrowing the master, the student outgrowing the master, teacher, whatever the hell. Master's probably a terrible word. Um, 
Yeah, let's uh, delete that shit. <laughs> nah, I just played up. <laughs> yeah, the student outgrowing the teacher. Well, you, you get what I'm saying. The point is, to me, it's a blessing. If, 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 if youth I was working with grow into their own right and they're doing this thing, that's beautiful. And I'm not too proud to be like, yo, how'd you do that? Like, Glow's been telling me about the book, been pushing me to get mine done. And it's almost, there's 90% done. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's been 80% done for a long time, but... Yeah, yeah, we no no cameras on. <laughs> I was like, it's it's gonna get done easily. And the whole point of it is, you know, um, and I do want to touch on one more point, but there is a future in this. It is viable. There is a way to make income. The problem is a lot of people are like, yeah, I'm gonna hop on stage and I'm gonna go on tour with Nas, and I'm gonna no. Yes, but no, really, you gotta find the different opportunities you have to make income. For instance, for me. Workshops, facilitating workshops kept my art alive for years, you know, and I'll be real with you. I made some mistakes along the way. I had a little hate club here and there, and it was really hard because at one point nobody was trying to like book me or do nothing. So I just started booking myself, you know what I'm saying? And off of that, I also started facilitating workshops. I read this book called The 4-Hour Workweek, which I highly recommend to anyone that wants to be an entrepreneur or professional artist. And this book taught me the Pareto Principle. You know the Pareto Principle? So the Pareto principle is um, is a economist, an Italian economist who was uh, who had a garden, and he was realizing that eighty percent of the crop he was harvesting was only coming from twenty percent of the seeds he was sowing, and he started looking at life like everything is like eighty twenty. You know, if you think about it, you know, and it's not eighty twenty set; it could be seventy thirty, ninety ten. But if you think about it, let's use eighty twenty. Eighty percent of the stress usually is coming from around twenty percent of the people in your life. If you really boil it down, it's not all coming from one, you know, from everyone around. It's like, oh, wait, is this person? Okay. So when you cut that person out, now you're getting rid of 80% of your stress. Uh, there was a band that put out an album and they were analyzing their streams and they realized that there was just two songs that were getting like 90% of the streams and everything else wasn't really taken into it. So they went and created a new album replicating the two songs and keeping that type of genre and feel and vibe of the music and their album sales shot through the roof they were analyzing what was working. So for me, I sat down one year because I found my taxes and everything on the art side of it. And I realized like as an artist, it was like 10% of my income. But as a facilitator, it was like 85 and then take like 5% for like speaking or whatever. And that really made me motivated to start focusing on facilitating workshops and getting myself organized as a business. And in that, I was able to sustain myself. Uh, in a beautiful way, you know, to this moment. Now, the other piece that's super critical to everything we're doing, which is a mandate for One Mike Educators, is to build immigrant indigenous friendship. And so we got Crystal Rivers, you know, uh, Mohawk sister that's, that's just an incredible multidisciplinary artist, you know, uh, DJ, dancer, uh, spoken word artist. I want to hear her rap because she definitely got the flows for it. So we've done a lot of work with her and our youth group River Rocks out in Six Nations territory. And um, Six Nations has been a strong place of healing for me. So we got a partnership that we're developing with the Woodlands Cultural Center, which was formerly the Mohawk Residential School. And our culminating conference in August is going to be taking place at the Woodlands Cultural Center. Um, and to me, part of it is also ensuring that the access and the learnings and the teachings are getting out to like our, you know, our indigenous family out out in Six Nations um, 
as a thank you on my end, just for all the healing that the territories brought to me, all the love that I've received from the people. I want to ensure that whatever knowledge we pick up is shared out there. And also in the process, we continue to build that immigrant indigenous friendship. So we're learning from each other. Um, there's numerous projects on the go. The, the original squad from One Mike, they put together an immigrant indigenous friendship video poem. And I'm really proud of that. And we're going to continue to expand. So as much as this is artist development, this is also building that immigrant indigenous friendship for sure. Good. And what do you think are some of the um, barriers? A bit about how did you start to begin to build relationships as an immigrant with the indigenous? Yeah. So basically for me, I, you know, I was born and raised in Guatemala and we had to leave because of the civil war. Uh, the, the Mayan peoples in Guatemala were subjected to genocide um, and in some respects still are. And my mother and her best friend were working on a project to create a cooperative in an indigenous community where the husbands had been murdered by the military and we were forced to leave as refugees. My mother's best friend was disappeared by the military in broad daylight. She was on a national softball team and they took her right after the practice and we had to leave. And so I felt this sense of responsibility to be able to, you know, at that time I didn't have the concept of building immigrant indigenous friendship, but I had the concept of doing something. And so when I got here, to Canada, I ended up going on an exchange program and I was very fortunate to end up in Pete in Prince Edward Island. And as part of the exchange program, we got to visit a Mi'kmaq territory and we got to speak with the elders. And this was my first time dealing with indigenous people in Canada. You know, I knew obviously it was indigenous territory, but I didn't know where to go at the time. And I think a lot of settlers, you know, immigrants, we don't know where to go and we just trying to survive. And so people don't even know how to start. So for me, having had that happen organically was beautiful. So my last day uh, in Prince Edward Island, we all had a choice to do whatever we wanted. I went right back to that reserve and I just spent the day sharing pictures from Guatemala, learning from the people. Uh, one of the women brought her son and he brought his drum and he sang a song for me. And it was just such a moving experience. And I felt compelled to like do something, you know, and, and, you learn along the ways. Cause I think a lot of people have the concept of like the savior mentality and it's not, savior. It's not like we're saving anybody. We just, how can we be responsible to our friends who are the original caretakers of this land that we live on? And from that, you know, there was uh, in Six Nations and why I love this territory. Uh, I brought these two Afro-Cuban rappers up. I was working at Ryerson at the time. And as part of having them here, I wanted them to connect with indigenous people. And there was a sweat lodge ceremony taking place. So I actually brought them out and we coordinated and we participated in a sweat lodge and it was incredibly healing. And about a month later, there was the, the standoff that happened in Caledonia, known as Ganestado. Um, so I had that beautiful experience in the Mi'kmaq territory in Prince Edward Island, spending the day uh, hearing songs, connecting, uh, you know, with the elders, the women there. And it was just so, so beautiful for me. And I felt like, you know, I need this as, as a, you know, uninvited guests, which is what all of us who are immigrants are, including white people, blonde hair and blue eyes. Is If you're not indigenous, you're an immigrant to this country, period. Um, and so when I got back to Toronto, eventually I had got a job at Ryerson Students Union. I have a whole funny poem about that called Dear Progressive White People, which we'll get into later. Um, but as part of my experience over there, I brought these Afro-Cuban rappers and I wanted them to connect with indigenous people. And while they were here, I was advised of a sweat lodge ceremony that was taking place. Um, I think it was Garth Yard. I, I got to go back to the memory banks and make sure I credit this person because that opened up the door for me in Six Nations territory. We went out, we participated in the sweat lodge. It was incredible. It was just such a powerful experience. A month later, um, 
a blockade erupted in Six Nations because the government was trying to sell off their burial grounds and they started developing homes, you know, without the consent and in violation of the treaties. And the people rose up, kicked out the developers, police raided them, you know, faced off with the police. The police eventually backed up and they eventually won that fight and were able to protect their burial grounds. It's still there untouched to this day. Uh, in the middle of all that, I caught word of what was happening and there was a lot of racist attacks towards indigenous people. There was flyers circulating that the KKK was coming to slaughter the Indians, quote unquote. And I was like, nah, that can't happen. That can't happen. You know, we're, we're no. So I got some of my homies and we went out there and we're like, yo, we got to go fight. We got, we can't let this happen. We, we came out there ready for whatever. I got a Muslim brother, Jamaican martial artist, couple of homies that, you know, have their expertise in different uh, venues, if I could be diplomatic about it. We went there ready for it, you know, and we got there and we let the people know, like, you got to know, you can't just roll up there. You got to know who you're looking for. So then as soon as we got there, one of the brothers pulled up and and he had his fatigues on and he had that energy. I was like, okay, let's do this. So I was like, yo, where do you need us? We're ready. And the dude looked at me like, uh, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, we know, like some something's supposed to pop off. We're here to fight for you guys. And he's like, you don't know about our great life peace, do you? <laughs> and I was like, nah, but we're ready to fuck some people up. <laughs> so he laughed. Thankfully, he laughed because yeah, I've made a total ass out of myself. And he took me to the clan mothers. You know, it's a matrilineal system. The clan mothers have kind of the final say. And this was a very traditional uprising. So they brought us to the clan mothers. And he sat, he he walked in and he said, these men are here to fight for us with a smile on his face. So now I'm like, yeah, I totally said the wrong things over here. So she lovingly sat us down and explained to us about their their you know origin stories and the great peacemaker and and she said to us if you look outside the police are facing the white people because it is they who are being violent we are not being violent we are defending our land but we're not being violent so if you've come here with the spirit of fight you're actually violating our sacred principles you know what i'm saying and it was a very humbling lesson we ended up serving uh, food in the soup kitchen <laughs> my homies, my homies are serving corn soup, looking at me like, this isn't what we came for. <laughs> but I'm really thankful. <laughs> laugh, man, laugh. It's a funny story. It's, it's intended to be funny, but I'm thankful we had that experience because that taught me immediately about proper allyship. Sometimes we come in and offer help that nobody asked for. And they're like, what are you doing? And then you end up serving corn soup, you know what I'm saying? Because that is what's needed. So... Yeah, man. I think we probably did dishes too that night. It was a beautiful experience, man. And that's where it was birthed. Now, I understand for people that would like to build that relationship but don't know how. And it's kind of like, how do I do it? I mean, there's powwows that are open to the public you can visit, but that doesn't necessarily allow you to build a human connection. And I think, you know, why I love Six Nations is I brought over a thousand youth from the city out to Six Nations over the last decade, and they've always been received with love. No matter where they come from, with their background, with their skin color, they've always been received with love. And it allowed the opportunities. I mean, some of the things we did was just playing 2K on my homie's PlayStation, you know. And then the youngins are like, oh, wow, y'all do that too? And he's like, yeah, what do you think we do? Just sit around a fire all day? Like, no, we, we got lives. We do our thing, you know. So it's important for me because one thing that, you know, indigenous people have told our squad when we were working on that immigrant indigenous friendship poem is like what we would always ask, what can we do? And we would always get back, build friendship with us. And initially we were like, uh, you know, like we were ready to like, burn things down. Like this, you y'all let us know literally, and we'll do whatever. And the answer always came back: build friendship. Whether it was, you know, a Six Nations uh, 
Haudenosaunee Confederacy, you know, anti-racism youth conference or whether it was, you know, my homie Valley Angels, uh, New Channel, all the way out from, you know, BC. The message was always build friendship. And so to me now, that's just a core operating principle of, of the enterprise, of the collective. We always want to create the space. And if you've wanted to and you're listening to this podcast and you don't know how, holla at us and come on board because some of these workshops are going to take place in Six Nations. And it'll be an organic opportunity to get to know the people. Just come with respect and come with a good heart. And you're welcome. And let's say even we're going to do it obviously at the end, but let people know right now that we've said that. Where can they connect? Mm. Yeah, so Instagram, educators, one mic. Um, I got to get all my social media handles in order. So hopefully, you know, with your expertise, you'll break it down. Because I got educators, one mic on Twitter and Instagram. But then the website is one mic educatorsca and I put the dash in because it looked like one mice educators. It looked like a rodent company. So I, I didn't think any of this thing through properly. But we're here now. It's been like seven years. So do you have advice? Like, what do I do here? Because I got all these different handles and stuff. Nothing's matching. It's keeping consistency. So if you have a consistent handle across all of your different platforms, it makes it easier for people to remember how to find you on any platform. So if you have it set up even as one mic edu then that would be something that people would know it's educational because edu and then if you have that available on all platforms no one has to remember to dash they just know it's one mic edu no matter which platform i go on mm, and 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 do your research and get all those handles sorted out before you even go public exactly so if you check out for us the dope content we are the dope content on linkedin we are the dope content on instagram we are the dope content on facebook we are the dope content on tiktok we are the dope content no matter where you find the dope yeah, content. my shit's just all over <laughs> you know, can you let them know, Mark, because, you know, as much as this is La Raza and this is One Mike Educators, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for dope content and BIPOC access. So can you let the people know about the expertise you're bringing to the Sable on this whole project? The dope content, our main thing is essentially to bring digital skill sets to underserved and marginalized um, communities. Uh, we have another project right now called BIPOC Access. BIPOC is Black, Indigenous, People of Color. And what we're looking to do is provide access to resources. So we're not taking anything away from anyone else, but we want access for ourselves and people just like us who all have similar stories of not having that access in the past. And the way we look at it is you're a person who believes in humanity, you believe in fairness, and you should have no issue seeing an individual that wants to learn something, um, helping them to be able to achieve what they're trying to achieve. Um, not getting in the way, not being a gatekeeper or a barrier creator, but kind of like taking that away so that everyone has equal access to opportunities. Um, so what we do in terms of that is we've had the BIPOC Access Web 3 Conference, which was a two-day conference in Kitchener, Ontario at the museum that was supported by the Region of Waterloo Upstream Grant. And we did two days over there teaching about intellectual property, content creation, marketing, and distribution. Um, shout out to Tai Nam, a trademark and IP lawyer who volunteered his time to come down and actually show the participants how to register their own copyright. So to be able to control who copies your intellectual property, that's essentially what a copyright is, it's the right to copy. So once you control that, nobody can copy what you're doing. They can't put it out in a different form. You now have the right to be able to license that to them and they need your authorization. So we're just kind of, and these are things that are the basis of how business works in Canada, the U.S. and all over, is that intellectual property or your trademarks, your patents, et cetera. Um, and then from there, we just want to make sure that people have access to tell their stories. So the podcast is a big part of that. 
being able to allow people to use their own voice. And really, we found that within the communities in the past, like we were talking about when we were coming up doing spoken word, et cetera, there wasn't as much access to getting the quality equipment that you needed to have that fair chance where people aren't going to look at it like this is cheaper than the other. No disrespect to much music, but every time I used to see a video fact video, I knew it was a video fact video. So it almost made a, a difference between something American was like, this is how you do it properly. And then Canada, it was kind of like, we can see the difference. Whereas now the Canadian artists are some of the biggest artists in the world. And there's no differentiation of it being a Canadian artist versus a U.S. artist. Um, and I think that's kind of the evolution that comes with it. The more people learn, the more that they understand the um, specifics of how you create that product that the world loves to consume. And we want to bring that to everyone because everyone has a story. And at the end of the day, if you look at large media companies, what they're looking for is that subject matter expert from lived experience. And they're searching around to find that person. If you are that person, why not create that production, create that media for yourself and own it? And then when these other large organizations come around trying to utilize it, license it to them. You keep ownership. You sell it to them. The NBA is all licensing. That's why it's licensed by the NBA. Every single sports team is licensed by the NBA. It's intellectual property. It's franchises. When you put a Bulls onto a jersey, that team owns that Chicago Bulls jersey. And what they're trying to do is keep you on that team and being loyal to the team, not to the player, because the player is an employee of the team. And the owner owns that intellectual property and the team and the stadium. So when that player goes away, that's why you see they want the fans to hate that player. Why are you leaving the city? He's not leaving the city, people. He's leaving his job. Like, when's the last time you told a man, why are you leaving the warehouse for? I'm mad now that you're leaving the warehouse. Like, why? It's not your job. But these fans, they get that attached and they get that um, sucked into storytelling marketing, essentially. And the real thing is that I want people to recognize what they're doing, become more awake and aware of what they're doing. And then you can still make the choice if you want to. But no one is fooling you because the information is readily available to us all. Mm, that's deep, brother. This is going to be a very beautiful um, project, man. I'm really honored. Like the knowledge that you're dropping and I can see my people that's here is just eyes go wide open because we don't really get this. You know, we just we do our thing. I'm good on the business side as far as like the grants and I, not just getting the grant, but then executing the grant, you know, because a lot of us in the past, we get our grants, we, we do whatever. We don't submit the report. Uh, then you got to pay the taxes on it. You know, that's something that I feel passionate about sharing over the course of this this project that we do together is to ensure you're filing your taxes accordingly because the government knows you got this money. So you might not, you know. And um, so I feel like this is going to be really dope. I know we got uh, Coach Siete and Glows in the house. I would love for them to get on the mic if, you, if you're good with it. Um, because essentially this is everyday people. This is real artists. It's not, we, we ain't coming here with gimmicks. We ain't got management. We ain't got A&Rs. We just very passionate community driven artists that want to make a difference in this world. That's our bottom line. And we just need the tools and clearly you got the expertise. So Mark, my brother, I'm honored to be launching this with you. And uh, yeah, man, I'm gonna pass the mic. And this was a great episode, giving a quick intro on the event, giving an intro, um, the background of getting into spoken word, what you've been working on a bit about the dope content. And you are here with La Raza. Bow, bow, 